Blog Talk Radio. Eastern family, I believe every employee who has worked for Eastern Airlines remembers that day when they were told they were hired, whether it was delivered over the phone, in my case, by letter or in person by the person in charge of that department. We probably have not forgotten the rush that came upon us to know we were now with the world's greatest airline. Next came the training, by far the best in the industry. Arrangements were made back at home for the absence it would take to be an Eastern employee. Many of us received our training in Miami and at the eventual city we would be based. Uniforms were ordered and sometimes arrived after we were on the job, like happened to me. I flew my first trip two trips, actually, as a co-pilot in a business suit. In many cases, we left our cities and towns to relocate in a different state or city. Some would find it necessary to room with another fellow employee until they were able to rent or purchase accommodations for themselves and or their families. Many of us represented by a trade union would 
be on probation for a period before we could make any permanent arrangements. I know a few Eastern people who still have their first paycheck that they received issued by Eastern Airlines. I wish I had mine, or at least I had taken a picture of it, but I do remember the amount, as most of us do. We probably ask ourselves how we were going to survive with the amount shown on that check, especially those living in cities like New York, Chicago, Washington, Newark, etc. But we did, and oh, how it worked out for us, flying with one of the world's great airlines. When people ask us whether we worked where we worked and we proudly told them, many showed envy. And these are but a few reasons, ladies and gentlemen of Eastern Airlines, why the Eastern family is alive and well. From the early mail planes to the wide-body aircraft like the L-1011 and the sleek beauty of the Boeing 757 and 727, Eastern always had the latest and best equipment in the industry, and the first at that. From the passengers calling the airport to reserve a seat on a flight to the state-of-the-art reservation system and System 1, we were blazing the path for the future of the airline industry. Most former employees will still compare the career they had with Eastern to other career paths they would take after Eastern as no comparison at all. Eastern wins out every time. Here at the Eastern Airlines Radio Show, we are happy to tell the world about an airline that once was the wings of man. And those wings, my friends, were you and me and the thousands before us known as the Eastern family. Harry and Linda Lindquist and I are proud to read these stories about our favorite way to fly, Eastern, as told by its people. Now, Harry and Linda, what do we have tonight for our listeners? Let's continue our story of Captain Dick Merrill by O.B. Vivens in part two of the story. In some respects, to me and to others as well, I think Dick Merrill appeared to be an enigma. He just didn't fit the mold. During my three and a half years as co-pilot with Eastern Airlines, I flew with 50 different captains. Most were good pilots, some were outstanding, and a few were marginal in skill and other attributes. Of course, Dick fit into the outstanding group, but he was different. While most of this, these men relaxed and flew with great precision, Dick seemed to be working at something every moment. I can think of no adjective which described him more accurately than fidgety. When he was not flying, he was rolling the half dollar around his finger, or tapping his altimeter, or shifting in his seat. When he was manually flying the airplane, nothing escaped his alert eye. A 20-foot change in altitude called for an immediate correction. A one-degree excursion in the heading caught his attention and brought action. Yet he never criticized his co-pilot for much wider deviations than he allowed himself. On the contrary, he usually asked the man in the right seat to keep an eye on him and let him know if something didn't look right. Some pilots probably th saw this as a sign of insecurity or weakness, but those of us who had flown with him through serious emergencies had seen the real Dick Merrill, kind, modest, skilled, and self-effacing. We never again wondered how he would react to the stress of such an occasion. It was October the 14th, 1959. 
Dick and I were ferrying a Lockheed Constellation from Long Beach, California to Miami following a fuel tank overhaul. Two days before, I had won the toss in Miami and flew Constellation number 102 westbound. Now Dick was the captain of number 109 eastbound. It was extremely hot and smog had reduced visibility to less than a mile at Long Beach. We had 53 passengers and full tanks of gasoline as Dick rolled into position on runway 30. We were at maximum gross weight for takeoff. Dick eased the four throttles up to takeoff power and we began to roll. He lifted off the runway and called for gear up. As I pulled the gear handle up, the normal roar of the engine suddenly increased to ear-splitting proportions. Never before had I heard such a sound. It was a runaway propeller. The governor had failed and probably the low pitch stops as well. The number three tachometer had hit the peg. Dick was shouting, but the noise was overwhelming. I couldn't hear his voice, but I could read his lips. Feather number three. I pulled the throttle back and the noise level subsided considerably. I turned to the flight engineer and shouted Dick's command. It won't feather, came the reply. I relayed the engineer's words to Dick. He said nothing. A glance at the airspeed indicator showed 120 knots. I could see the end of the runway coming up ahead, and if Dick could hold the airspeed, we might be able to clear the oil derricks on the low hill at the end of runway 30. Performance of the heavily loaded airplane was being severely degraded by the added drag of the unfeathered propeller, but Dick, with his consummate airmanship, was coaxing every last foot per minute rate of climb out of the crippled aircraft. He was doing that he, he did best, something many others could not have done. Finally, as we reached 500 feet, Dick leveled off and began a, turn, began a turn to return to the airport. He had completed about 45 degrees of the 180 when he realized the visibility was insufficient. He could not see the airport, but the ground below was visible through the heavy smog. We still had takeoff power on the three good engines. To attempt to climb to sufficient altitude to execute an instrument approach would have required that we dump fuel over a populated area. We had already exceeded the two-minute time limit for the use of maximum power. Pushing the engines further was out of the questions, so we couldn't afford to lose another one. Taking all factors into account, Dick had formulated a plan. OB, he shouted above the roar of the engines, I think we're in a position to make a right procedure turn from here and land downwind. How's it look to you on the right? He had stopped the turn on a west heading and motioned for me to take the wheel. As I took the controls and began a right turn, I realized how close the big constellation was to a stall. If Dick had over-controlled or exhibited the slightest roughness in the climb after takeoff, we would have ended up in a blazing heap of metal scattered among the oil derricks. Looking back over my right shoulder, I could not see the airport, but the derricks were barely visible as we turned toward them. I think it'll work okay, Dick. I see those oil rigs on top of the hill. As they rolled out on a heading of 120 degrees, the end of the runway came into view. Although we were approximately 17,000 pounds overweight for landing, I knew we could make it. From here it was all downhill and the runway was 10,000 feet long. I called for the landing gear and flaps, eased the throttles back, and landed. Any co-pilot could have done it just as well. As I brought the propellers out of reverse, Dick took over with the nose wheel steering and turned off the runway. 
That was the greatest job of flying I've ever seen, he exclaimed. I told him I certainly agreed with that statement, but it was he who did it, not I. That was my old friend Dick Merrill. I'll never meet another like him. Eastern Airlines presents A Flight of Imagination to Walt Disney World Epcot Center. On an Eastern Super 7 vacation, a week here without airfare is as little as $156, including hotel, car, and more. How can we do this? Why, as the official airline of Walt Disney World, we can work a little magic of our own. This story is from the Eastern Air Transport News Wing from March of 1932. The title of the article is Pilot Finds Neighbor's Home Burning Roars Alarm. Pilot G.E. Slim Thomas, who flies the night airmail between Atlanta and Miami over the Eastern Air Transport System, served as a flying fireman for a neighbor, W. Harvey Jones, when the neighbor's house caught fire recently. It was 2 a.m., and Thomas was ending his long night run from Miami to Atlanta. He lives in East Point, near Atlanta's Canner Field, and then coming up from the south, he passes almost directly over his own roof. But the night he sighted a fire beneath him. Thomas bought, thought that it was his own home burning, and he dived his heavily loaded mail plane with wide open motor at its roof. As he flashed across the building, creating a terrific uproar, he saw that it was a neighbor's house, but he also saw that there was no fire apparatus around and nobody outside of the building. So back he came, turning, twisting, circling over the house, no higher than its burning roof. A few moments later, people ran out of the building, and as the pilot turned toward the flying field, he saw fire engines rushing through the streets. Jones didn't know it was his flying neighbor who had awakened him, but he told officials that he and his family had been soundly sleeping until awakened by the noise of the airplane. The house was destroyed, and little was saved from it. Pilot Thomas and the Joneses got together later to talk it over. little article from the Eastern Transport Newsletter. The title is Hostess Service Permanent After a Year's Trial. The newest vocation for women, that of air hostess, is now one year old. It was begun as an experiment but was declared today to occupy a permanent place at, in air transportation. 
The carefully chosen, smartly uniformed young women fly between the north and the south in the comfortable Curtis Condors of Eastern Air Transport. When this transport line employed girls a year ago to fly as regular members of the crew of its big 18-passenger airliners, it was told them that not only were they individually on probation, but the hostess idea itself was on probation as well. It would have to prove itself, and the girls would have to show that they could uphold the standards demanded by the company and maintain their round of efficiency. Since that time, the seven flying hostesses have flown an average of 97,142 miles each and have covered a total of approximately 680,000 miles. The three senior hostesses, according to the terms of service, have covered more than 100,000 miles each in the year. And all of them declare today that in spite of their many flying miles, they are wild about their jobs. The senior flying hostesses are Miss Bula Unra, who flew 158,000 miles in the year, Miss Madeline Moon, who flew 118,800 miles, and Miss Marion Cook, who traveled 108,600 miles. Miss Unru is a pilot in her own right, holding a limited commercial license. She declares that she likes all kinds of flying, whether I do the piloting or not. Miss Moon, the daughter of an Army chaplain, formerly was an art instructor at the Fort Riley School. Most recently, she was in charge of the arts and crafts department of a large metropolitan store. Miss Cook was a school teacher in New Jersey and New York. The girls fly between Newark Airport, Philadelphia, Baltimore, Washington, Richmond, Greensboro, Charlotte, Spartanburg, Greenville, Atlanta, Raleigh, Florence, Charlestown, Savannah, and Jacksonville. In addition to the hostesses named, others are Miss Edwina Davis, a senior ground hostess stationed in Washington, Miss Rita Brady, Miss Anne DePriest, Miss Carrie DePriest, Miss Floris Frost, Miss Gertrude Van Haven, Miss Alice West, Miss Catherine Turner, Miss Helen Keimer, and Mrs. Susan Garber. The latter is airport hostess at Richmond, and Miss Turner is stationed in Atlanta. Eastern is the shuttle airline. It's second nature to me to take the Eastern shuttle. Wouldn't think about using anybody else. I know there's lots of competition, but they're the people I just go to. And I'm happy with it. And I don't think I'd, I'd go to uh, any of the other uh, airlines. I think the Eastern Shuttle has always been very efficient, but it's become even more so with the improvements. Improvements like snacks and beverages, roomier seating, and more comfortable terminals. The Eastern Air Shuttle Plus. You've gone from a, a cab ride to closer to a limousine ride. Here's another article from the Eastern Air Transport Newswing magazine, dated May of 1932. The fourth anniversary of New York-Atlanta line. The New York-Atlanta Air Service is now four years old. This major route was established on May 1, 1928, when two pilots started out from each end of the line in separate planes and transported airmail between the north and south. Since that time, Eastern Air Transport, operator of the mail and passenger services, has flown a total of 8,980,000 scheduled miles and has transported a total of approximately 
2,490,000 pounds of airmail. This weight is equal to 99,600,000 individual letters and packages. Over 43 passengers have flown over the route in the year and a half since passenger services were added to the mail runs. The route began with just seven cities at airports of call, but now it extends all the way to Miami with an additional coastal run and an extension across Florida from Daytona Beach to St. Petersburg with a total of 25 airports of call and 29 important cities served. Four of the seven original mail planes with which the service was started four years ago are still in use. One of them is the original Pitcairn Mail Wing, the first ever built. The airmail volume grew so swiftly that these original planes were soon inadequate, but the craft has carried approximately 75,000 pounds of mail and flew 350,000 miles. Eastern Airlines, Los Angeles City, Los Angeles City. Out where the West Coast breezes flow so free. See this place here? This is my million dollar baby. I make hamburgers. Most people here feel very free to do what they want and to express themselves. It's got a lot of freeways and it's got a lot of cars and I love it. Los Angeles, one of the places that make Eastern Airlines what it is. In previous episodes, we've heard about some of the hijackings of airplanes that Eastern suffered during the uh, 1970s, 1980s. Here from the book, The uh, Captain and the Colonel by Robert Serling, here's an account of some of the hijackings and some of the programs that were put into place to try to counter these. Eastern suffered its first hijacking in September of 1968 and over the next six years was to experience 29 more. As a carrier based in Miami, with such close proximity to Cuba, it was particularly vulnerable. One hijacking attempt resulted in a crew fatality. The victim was James Hartley Jr., a co-pilot murdered by a gunman who got into the cockpit of a DC-9. The captain, Robert Wilbur, managed to land safely even though he had been wounded in both arms. Eastern's training center in Miami is named for Hartley, who left a wife and two small children. In another 1968 hijacking, there were two groups of hijackers aboard, nine in all, and neither group knew the other was on the plane. By coincidence, both wanted to go to Cuba. Eastern today is spending more than $32 million on security per year the bulk of it going for armed guards and screening personnel. More than 70 million persons were screened in 1978 and even more in 79. The airline launched what probably was the industry's most extensive security program in 1969 after experiencing 17 hijackings in that and the previous year. Mike Finello, Vice President of Safety, assigned John Shields to be Manager of Operational Security partly to work with the FAA on the problem, and also to set up EAL's own security measures. Shields, a retired Marine Corps fighter pilot who once headed security for Varig Airlines in Brazil, was a member of the government industry team that worked out the profile scheme, spotting potential hijackers by means of pre-established behavioral and physical characteristics. On Shields' recommendations, however, Eastern at first refused to accept the FAA-sponsored program of Federal Sky Marshals. He did go through the FAA's first Sky Marshal School, but then in return, he told Finello, 
We don't want them, Mike. First, I think they're probably very unsafe, and second, it's a total waste. Shields argued that if Eastern had to use marshals, they would be more valuable on the ground where they could participate in screening, but the FAA called a news conference to announce the Sky Marshal Program and the 100% cooperation of the industry. I hope I won't have to announce that Eastern is the only exception, an FAA official told Shields and Finello meaningfully. So Eastern had to accept them, although it used only 12 compared with the 200 assigned to TWA, and as Shields had predicted, the Marshall program was a flop. They were eating the airlines out of house and home, Shields recalled. There were instances of them falling asleep on duty, and in a couple of cases, they dropped their guns on the cabin floor when they dozed off. Profile screening and approved detection devices did far more to curb hijacking than did the widely publicized sky marshals. Before all the airports EAL served got efficient detectors, however, the airline was hit by hijacking in the unlikely city of Allentown, Pennsylvania. This was in May of 1972, and at the time, Eastern was giving detector installation priorities for its 900 gates to the bigger airports. This was an extortion attempt, the hijacker demanding $303,000 in denominations of $50 and $100 bills. After the money was raised, he forced the clue to fly to New, to fly to New Orleans and then to Honduras, where he got off the plane and went into hiding. Eventually, Shields learned where he was holed up, and when the FBI announced, FBI announced his whereabouts were known, he panicked and turned himself in at the U.S. Embassy. He was afraid the Honduras police would murder him for the money. A U.S. Marine sentry at first refused to let him in. Come back tomorrow morning, he was told. Tomorrow morning I'll be dead, he pleaded. You gotta let me in. Eastern flew a DC-9 to Honduras, and the hijacker actually was smuggled out of the country. Before it boarded, they hit him under the hoses of an airport fire truck because the FBI feared that people might try to free a man they considered something of a folk hero for twisting the tail of the giant from the north. He was sent to prison, and there he confided to a cellmate the location of the money. The FBI sent two informants to Honduras. The first picked, up, picked up $100,000 of the ransom, and the second, the rest of the loot. The success of the U.S. anti-hijacking program is well known, but when the crime wave began in 1968, it was one of the biggest headaches Art Lewis faced. Not the biggest, though. He found himself in almost immediate conflict with a man at whose insistence he had been given the job. Lewis believed his main task was to retain and even improve the quality of service, but at the same time start getting operating costs down, a concept with which Hall expressed agreement, but once which was his own actions and decisions belied. On June 1st, Eastern Airlines will be taking off for New York with Eastern's Transcon four times a day. Only Eastern reserves every single seat in cabin two just for discount travelers. For a very low $149 each way on a round trip, you can fly clear across the USA. Just reserve and buy your ticket at least seven days in advance and stay a Friday night. You'll get full coach service and something more. New York. Eastern's Transcon. Let's continue to hear about Eastern during the years of World War II. This is from the book, The Captain and the Colonel, by Robert Serling. We'll learn about Captain Eddie's adventure of being lost at sea and then being found after 22 days. 
The captain's attitude toward his airline during the war became close to detachment, at least through the first years. This was natural, inasmuch as he couldn't order new planes, start new routes, nor press for increased traffic. He came out strong for Tom Thomas E. Dewey in the 1944 presidential election, which didn't surprise anyone. In 1940, he had handed out Wilkie buttons to EAA employees, and while he hadn't actually ordered anyone to wear them, quite a few interpreted the distribution exactly that way. At times, he almost seemed determined to make his own political views Eastern's policy. Perhaps he didn't really want to go that far, but years later, one of his successors was to comment. Rickenbacker was always complaining the government was prejudiced against him, blaming politicians for the airline's route troubles. What the hell did he expect when he handed out Republican campaign buttons while a Democratic administration was handing out route awards? But at least Captain Eddie was consistent. He claimed to have voted for FDR in 1932, but he quickly became disenchanted with the New Deal and remained an unyielding enemy of Roosevelt as long as FDR lived. Yet the president never tried to keep Rickenbacker out of the war effort as he did with Charles Lindbergh. One reason was that Captain Eddy had a friend in court, so to speak, Secretary of War Henry Stimson, who admired EVR's frankness and dedication, if not his open hatred of Roosevelt, not to mention Rickenbacker's close friendship with Hap Arnold. Arnold had told Stimson of Captain Eddy's rapport with rookie pilots on his tour of flight training centers, and Stimson was impressed enough to suggest another mission. In September 1942, he wrote Rickenbacker suggesting that the captain visit England as a non-military observer of Army, Air Force, Bomber, and Fighter Commands, evaluating the morale situation at these overseas stations. Captain Eddy accepted immediately, but at a subsequent face-to-face -face meeting with Stimson, the Secretary in War enlarged considerably on what he wanted EVR to accomplish in England. Look at two things, he told Rickenbacker the conduct of the air war in general, and evaluation of U.S. aircraft and personnel specifically. Stimson, a conservative but not nearly as right-wing as EVR, never bought the claim of so many liberals that the captain was a hoary anachronism, the 110% American who would gush forth praise and platitudes about any piece of U.S. equipment because to criticize it might seem unpatriotic. Rickenbacker had his faults, but he was unwaveringly honest and brutally frank. Both Arnold and Stimson offered him a Brigadier General's commission. When he refused, they upped the ante to a major generalship and got the same answer. You pay me the same as you did when I toured the domestic bases, he told them, a dollar a year, and I'll pay my own expenses. You might be more effective as a high-ranking officer, Arnold suggested. Some people might clam up to a civilian, even somebody as well-known as you. No, sir, EVR declared. When I get back, I want to be able to pound the table, point to the facts, and get some action. He was in England several weeks, meeting with a number of British officials, including Churchill, but spending most of his time observing and studying U.S. air bases. His most comprehensive report concerned the B-17 bomber, on which he submitted more than 20 criticisms and 17 recommendations for improvements, such as improved oxygen mask, installation of armor plate under the pilots and navigator. In 1918, he had placed a stove lid under the seat of a SPAD, and more electrical power to gun turrets to keep them from freezing at high altitudes. His written reports to Arnold and Stimson were made public after the war, but what he told them verbally he steadfastly refused to reveal, 
and neither the Stimson nor Arnold memoirs mention this phase of his findings. The logical supposition is that Reckenbacher was much more critical in his verbal briefing than he ever wanted anyone to know. He did bring back with him one set of plans for the North African invasion, the other two sets going by special courier via airplane and on a U.S. cruiser. Rickenbacker was prouder of this messenger role than of anything else he did in the war. Figuratively speaking, Stimson told him not to bother unpacking. Six days after return from England, EVR was heading for a similar mission to the Pacific Theater and carrying his head a carefully memorized confidential message from the Secretary of War to General Douglas MacArthur. Rickenbacker later described it as something of such sensitivity that it could not be put on paper. What the message concerned was never disclosed. He left San Francisco October 17, 1942, on a Pan-American clipper accompanied by Colonel Hans Adamson, the Army public relations man who had been with him on both the U.S. and England tours. At Honolulu, after a brief rest period and inspection of Air Force bases in the area, he changed over to a B-17 for the long flight to MacArthur's headquarters at Port Moresby, New Guinea. There apparently was a clash of personalities the minute he met the aircraft commander, Captain Bill Cherry, a tall Texan who had been an American Airlines co-pilot before the war. Rickenbacker was to comment later that he was a little surprised at Cherry's appearance. The Texan supported a goatee and cowboy boots. The rest of the crew was somewhat more military. First Lieutenant Jim Whitaker, whom EVR thought looked like a little old to be a co-pilot. The navigator, First Lieutenant John DeAngelis, Sergeant Jim Reynolds, the radio operator, and Private John Bartek, the freckled, red-haired mechanic who was only three months out of mechanic school. There was also a third passenger, Sergeant Alex Kazmarek, a young crew chief who had been hospitalized in Honolulu with appendicitis and jaundice and was on his way back to his unit in Australia. The B-17 ground looped after blowing a tire on takeoff, and the party had to shift to another flying fortress. This time, departure was uneventful, and the B-17 grumbled peacefully toward the first stop, Tiny Canton Island, 1,800 miles southeast of Hawaii, uh, southwest of Hawaii. The estimated flying time was 10 hours, and for what transpired in that airplane and what went wrong, we have only the accounts written later by Rickenbacker. In his autobiography and an earlier book, Seven Came Through, published in 1943. That's the end of part one. Stay tuned for the rest of this exciting adventure of Captain Eddie Reckenbacker. Over the past several months, we've heard several stories from the book, The Best of Repartee. That's the book of the Retired Eastern Pilots Association. I thought it might be interesting to go back to the beginning of this organization and see uh, some of the first planning and the first meeting. This is a letter written on November the 15th, 1971. It was written to all retired Eastern Airline pilots. Eastern Airlines has given the pilots to go ahead for organizing a retired pilots association. So while the iron is hot, the organizing committee, E.M. Taylor and L.C. Transu, would like to strike fast. With help from Eastern Airlines, we have planned an organizing convention in Miami at the Sheraton Royal Biscayne Hotel for December 7, 8, and 9. Eastern Airlines obtained a summer rate for us, and the Sheraton Corporation gave us 50% discount of that, $6.75 per person per night, double occupancy, 
Complete dinners in a nice dining room began at $3.90. Eastern Airlines has also agreed to furnish C3 passes with no service charge for you and your wife if you are not living in the Miami area for transportation to and from this convention. We'll have a banquet on December the 8th. There'll be a fine door prize, so bring your lucky shoes. We've requested Frank Borman, our speaker of equal stature, for that banquet. The company has also promised us all reasonable cooperation to get us started, and we think this is a step in the right direction. At the organizing convention, we will discuss the setup of the Retired United Pilots Association, the Gray Eagles, American Airlines, over 600 strong, and the Golden Wings from Delta. This is planned to be a social organization with no bargaining powers as such with Eastern Airlines. On the other hand, we will gladly accept and appreciate the company's assistance and cooperative attitude. The wives are intended to be strongly included in all functions. The United Airlines retired group advised us, you need the wives in the group if you are going to hold it together. Gentlemen, the purpose of this organization would be to maintain the close friendships and associations of the members and to promote their general welfare. welfare. We think this is a golden opportunity to get the retired organization started, even on such short notice. Get the applications for the hotel registration in as quickly as possible, if you will. As a special concession, the Sheridan Corporation agreed to let us pay the bill when checking out so you won't lose anything if you should cancel your reservation for any reason. We plan free transportation from the airport to the hotel. Also, the wives of some of the Miami retirees plan a motorcade for shopping and sightseeing for the gals while we conduct the business meetings in the mornings. Sincerely, E.M. Taylor and L.C. Transu. I'd just like to repeat some of those uh, dollar information here. The rate at the hotel, again, I get this, $6.75 per person per night, complete dinners starting at $3.90. This has been a while ago, but it's still hard to believe you could ever get a hotel room at a decent place for $6.75. Hope you enjoyed this story. After a long business trip, the last thing you need is a hassle at the airport. That's why Eastern has one-time check-in. It's like going from the curb directly to your plane. Because Eastern can give you boarding passes for your entire trip the first time you check in. One time check in. Eastern's way of wishing you many happy returns. I would suspect most of you listening to our broadcasts have done a fair amount of flying over your lifetime, either as a crew member or a passenger on a commercial airliner. Have you ever been on an airliner where there was a bona fide emergency and the outcome of your life and your fellow passenger's life was in doubt? Well, I've done a fair amount of flying, but I've never had that experience, thankfully. But why don't we join a, a Captain, Eastern Captain Tom Early and his crew and let him tell us about their harrowing experience with an emergency flight. We're going to fly from JFK to San Juan. And this story is entitled, A Sea of Beads. 
It was a splendid, sunlit 1983 September morning at New York's John F. Kennedy International Airport as I walked toward the Eastern Airlines crew schedule office to learn about my sought-after turnaround flight. My 27 years as an Eastern Airlines pilot provided me the opportunity to become a senior flight officer and the captain of a great 10-member crew which maintained, which manned one of the finest passenger aircraft of the 80s, the TriStar, Lockheed L-1011. After entering the crew schedule office, I was delighted to hear the scheduler say, Captain Early, you have a turnaround flight schedule for about two weeks. You'll be flying from JFK to San Juan, Puerto Rico, and then make a turnaround to JFK. He added, the estimated total flight time is seven hours, with one hour rest at San Juan International Airport. The schedule was appealing because such turnaround flights paid us well and offered considerable time off. In effect, we would fly the turnaround for three consecutive days, followed by a four-day interval of rest. Our 1,500-mile flight from from John Kennedy to San Juan was uneventful, with good weather and favorable winds. The landing was as smooth as could be. We arrived on schedule at 3.30 p.m. and had one hour to relax, regroup, and sign all the necessary papers to leave from San Juan to JFK. It was just a routine procedure in the life of a captain and his crew, except that our morale was exceptionally high because we got a good deal, the JFK-San Juan turnaround flight. Prior to my return flight, a walk-around inspection is required to check for excessive tire wear, hydraulic leaks, or any exterior deficiency which could affect flight safety. Additionally, the flight engineer supervises the fuel loading. In this particular flight from San Juan to JFK, approximately 80,000 pounds of fuel were loaded into the fuel tanks. Our passenger list, which consisted of approximately 350 Puerto Ricans, contributed to the near maximum takeoff weight of 430,000 pounds. After performing the required pre-checks to our satisfaction, we departed the gate on time. The TriStar rolled out nicely toward our takeoff position. As we taxied into the position on the runway, I told my co-pilot, take over the controls, it's your turn in the barrel. It was an established procedure to give a co-pilot the chance to fly. Aside from providing the captain the required relief, the co-pilot needs the experience in order to qualify as a future aircraft commander. Of course, I still retain the option of resuming control when necessary. Everything was proceeding smoothly, including the final items on the takeoff checklist. We quickly sped down the runway. It was an exhilarating experience to push the power levers forward, while at the same time commanding the max power. All the readings were normal as initial liftoff was achieved at 145 knots. When the splendid TriStar was off the ground about 100 feet, my co-pilot gave the command, gear up. I responded by reaching forward to pull the gear lever upward, but it would not budge. The gear was frozen. We obviously had a problem, and so informed the Puerto Rican control tower. The tower notified us, circle the field at about 3,000 feet until the problem is resolved. This was a first-time experience for me, and there was nothing in the technical manual to cope with this emergency. After circling the field, I called the tower, request a flyby at about 200 feet to take a look at our landing gear. After approval was granted, we cautiously flew by the tower only to hear, 
Your right main gear looks like it is broken. The front wheels on the right side are dangling in a downward position. Disheartenedly, we ascended to 3,000 feet and resumed circling. As we pondered the next step, we were informed that two nearby National Guard F-86 fighters were on the way to give their visual appraisal. Their observations confirmed the control tower's assessment. After the fighter pilots wished us good luck and flew away, my thoughts turned to the worried passengers and to my concerned flight attendants. Over the public address system, I announced, This is Captain Early. We're in the process of resolving a mechanical problem and we'll get back to you as soon as possible. Meanwhile, relax and keep your seat belts on and your seats upright just in case we decide to land for repairs. Thank you. With my fingers crossed, I anxiously returned to the problem at hand. After careful deliberation, the crew and I decided that we had no choice but to land. The possibility of a fire was strong, particularly if the rest of the main gear collapsed and direction control was lost on the runway. To lessen hazardous conditions, we dumped fuel down to a minimum level. We then advised the tower we were ready to land. The tower cleared us. The airport's emergency squad had phoned the runway in order to reduce the possibility of creating sparks which could ignite the plane's fuel. Before starting the landing pattern, it was time to check the pulse of the passengers and flight attendants. I unbuckled my seatbelt and headed for the quarter-inch peephole of the cockpit door which faced the passenger cabin. The peephole had a wide-angle lens which enabled me to see the entire cabin. It was fascinating to see a sea of glittering beads with silvery objects. I suddenly realized that I was looking at rosary beads with crosses in the hands of passengers who were nervously engaged in fervent prayer. The flight attendants appeared to be scared but maintained a proper level of composure. After viewing the sea of beads in an atmosphere of tension, I took three giant steps back to my left cockpit seat and hoped that the power of prayer would be a factor toward a successful landing. Instructions were given to the crew to begin the lantern pattern, and the passengers were reminded to secure themselves in their seats. Eventually, the co-pilot advised me, we are downwind, ready to turn final. I then assumed full command as we turned on a final approach. The tower gave us wind directions and other essential information, which included the position of fire trucks. Our final check was completed about five miles out. All we had to do was land this big bomb on the runway with hope that the dangling landing gear would level itself with the other wheels as our landing struts compressed. With a tremendous sigh of relief, the plane landed without much difficulty. We were home free. The TriStar rolled a long way to the near end of the runway and stopped without vibrations. The airplane was towed to the terminal where the relief passengers safely deplaned. Maintenance personnel began repairing the broken landing gear while I reported to the Eastern Airlines Operation Office to discuss the situation with Federal Aviation Administration officials. The FAA offered, offered me some Monday morning quarterbacking advice about the problem. I simply replied, all the passengers walked away without even a nosebleed. The aircraft is in one piece. The crew survived without injury and performed well under adverse conditions. I rest my case. I left the meeting with the impression that none of us was responsible for the malfunction. After two to three hours of waiting, our maintenance people declared the aircraft serviceable. It was cleaned, fueled, and prepared to complete the last leg of the turnaround to JFK with the same group of passengers. The trip went smoothly and without incident. 
it appeared that confidence in flight safety was restored, particularly among the crew members. From that day forward until I retired, every flight under my command was a piece of cake in comparison with that incident. Finally, after 42 years as a commercial pilot and a World War II naval aviator, I retired my wings in 1984 at the, at the compulsory age of 60. Since then, I often sat comfortably in my rocking chair by the fireplace and reminisce about my flying experiences, particularly my first JFK San Juan turnaround. When I think of the incident, I always fantasize that the landing was successful because a sea of beads served as the buffer between the hard ground and the dangling wheels. Wow. It's been another evening listening to the fascinating stories and memories of a great airline, Eastern. We have plenty more to come during this series of broadcasts, and we hope you are enjoying reliving the times we spent with this legendary company of men and women keeping the great fleet of aircraft in the air and making it one of the largest carriers in the free world. There are so many stories still out there that we want to share with you. It can be one of your stories or memories if you would only tell us. You can do that by writing your story and emailing it to us so that it can be read during one of our future broadcasts. You can email it to enealholland at yahoo.com. That's eneal, N-E-A-L, holland at yahoo.com. And we'll do the rest. Of course, we'll let you know when it will be broadcast. You can also record it in your own voice and send to us at the same email address, enealholland at yahoo.com. It must be sent in an MP3 file. Most computers will default recording the recordings in that format or a WAV file. These are the only two formats of voice recordings that our broadcasting server will accept. If you want more information about how to do the recordings, you can call me, Neil Holland, at 904-866-8114, and I'll be happy to walk you through the process. It's very easy, and you will be sharing more of your memories of our beloved airlines in our broadcast. You'll be taking part in telling the story of Eastern Airlines. Well, that's about all we have for you tonight. And on behalf of Harry, Linda, and myself, we hope you'll be back for more Memories of a Great Airline, Eastern, next week at the same time, 8 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, and station blogtalkradio.com forward slash Captain Eddie, C-A-P-T-E-D-D-I-E. Now, good night, Eastern family. We'll see you next week.